Hello and welcome to another edition of Humanitarian AI Today, a podcast series produced by the Humanitarian AI Meetup.com groups in Cambridge, San Francisco, Seattle, New York City, Montreal, Toronto, London, Paris, Berlin, Oslo, Geneva, Zurich, Bangalore, Tel Aviv, and Tokyo. I'm Brent Phillips. I head production of the podcast series behind the scenes. And today I'm in Berlin, and I thought I'd use the opportunity to guest host an interview myself. I'm here with Rob Zukov. He's with the Center for Humanitarian Action. And uh, I thought we'd learn more about what you're doing and talk a little bit about digitization and the Syrian crisis and your work with the German government. So, um, Rolf, to get started, would you like to introduce yourself and tell me your title and what the Center for Humanitarian Action is? Sure, many thanks for having me. Um, uh, I'm Rolf, I'm the director of the CHA or CHAR, as we name it sometimes to have it as easy as possible. I've been the, the founding director in 2019 of the center. But the credit for establishing the center goes uh, by no means to me, but by a couple of um, NGOs, actually, who took the initiative and said, well, Germany is such an interesting humanitarian hub by now, such an interesting place and a, and a top donor, which has changed dramatically over the course of uh, the last decade, that we need something independent, an independent body accompanying this boom, accompanying German humanitarian policies, and bridging it from the often very isolated German debates to the international arena and uh, guys like you and the work you are doing. So we have to link these things up and that's uh, with the core mandate of CHAR and why we started. On the airplane yesterday, I was reading that the German humanitarian funding is quadrupled, quadrupled since 2014. And there's a lot of hope with this new funding and a lot of expectations. And so your work is quite important to help realize effective humanitarian action in the field based on real capabilities. Coming from the States, could you tell me a little bit about humanitarian actors and how do I envision Germany and funding streams and what the community of German organizations and leading organizations and who is German humanitarian action community? It's a really interesting and important question which uh, comes across to us pretty often um, when, when we started the think tank and even in my previous life uh, when I've been as a practitioner director of the World Food Program, for example based in Jordan, um, heading the regional office for the Syria crisis, very often people came across to me and said, oh you are German, that's really interesting, so what does Germany want in humanitarian affairs, why do they give so much money and why is such a black box? And um, I think various factors playing into it. For a start, um, as, as you mentioned, Germany hasn't been such an important humanitarian actor. Even if you compare it with 10 years ago, uh, German funding even increased by 20 times. And today, after the US, they are the second largest donor, a rather increasing funding versus uh, trends, for example, of other uh, actors like the UK and spending more than 2 billion euros a year on humanitarian action, which hasn't been the tradition. And that also explains a lot to why the presence, uh, the impact, uh, the influence of Germany, even until today, is not that uh, visible and maybe in many arenas, uh, in fact, not existing. 
because you have a limited capacities, you have a limited tradition and limited know-how on the public side. But in the in the run-up to our sector, um, there has been also being produced a, a study on, on civil society and German NGOs and German humanitarian actors in Germany. And has been pretty self-critical on saying, well, it's also not really on an international playing field. It's not also um, expanding and growing the same pace as, as German funding for, for humanitarian affairs. And so there's a lot to learn and a lot to catch up. And that's also why it's so important to link what we do and the German community does um, with the international arena and to learn from both sides. Yeah, it's interesting. So I've been involved in humanitarian operations since the uh, 1990s. And it's true that Germany has a reputation for being very um, structured and thoughtful. And Germany is very active in this crisis response field. And I was, I was reading again on your plane about your funding, who you're funding. And, you know, obviously because of the Syrian crisis and the Omina region, there's been an increase in funding. And maybe this is accelerated because of the Syrian crisis. Definitely. I mean, it has been one of the triggers that Chancellor Merkel herself admitted when um, Syrian refugees moved on uh, a much larger scale to, to European countries in 2015. And it was also linked to my work at that time for the World Food Program. There has been a recognition that one of the triggers has definitely been that um, humanitarian assistance in the region, in the neighboring countries, have been halved over the course of the years. There was a starting donor fatigue for Syria crisis in the neighboring countries. And um, the situation of the Syrian war going on forever, apparently, and so little hope that there was any chance to return in the foreseeable future to Syria, which most refugees want, and that's why they stay in the region on a voluntary basis. That, that hope faded more and more. At the same time, the support for them in the region uh, has been decreasing, almost phasing out. There have been uh, very serious cuts, of, uh, like, like the World Food Program providing at that time, social uh, welfare support in a sense by cash. Uh, a lot of innovative cash has been provided in the region by various actors. But this cash has been halved over the course of a few years. And so even the basic support for um, surveillance um, didn't, didn't work anymore. And the people got hopeless and started moving. And so the German government recognized, okay, there is indeed um, a correlation and we really need to ensure that our humanitarian engagement is living up to, to expectations. For a start on the financial side, but um, as many say, uh, not yet on the, on the policy side. Exactly. It's interesting as well, and I really enjoyed reading. You have a lot of different reports published on your website, and so I encourage people to check them out. They're very informative. And thinking about Syria and the humanitarian response and protracted crises, and there there's, has been a, a, a drop in funding, and I think we're seeing that even more now. And it's interesting because uh, Germany, I didn't know this, but you're one of the pioneers in cash aid programs, and there's been a lot of innovation and focus on that. And would you say that, you know, again, how do you, how do you help people impacted by the Syrian crisis in Lebanon and Syria and Turkey and around the region? And cash aid has been a big, a big aspect of that. And one of the things that your center is focused on is uh, localization. And that's trying to bring more, uh, how do you say, decision making capacity, grow it at the local level. And how does, the Syrian crisis and cash aid and localization, how do you see that shaping up? Yeah, very interesting question. I mean, if we start with the, with the cash issue, 
I believe um, on the one hand, Syria crisis, of course, obviously has been a really depressing story, and for humanitarians, really some some frustration, giving you the sense, well, um, it's really a crisis on so many fronts, doesn't make any progress, neither on the political nor on the humanitarian nor on linking developmental approaches and humanitarian approaches, etc. On the other hand, Syria crisis, I believe, even on a global scale, has been such an interesting innovation that, if you talk about humanitarian action, there have been so many approaches tested and run and then even scaled uh, for the first time or put into a really new dimension. One is cash. I mean, uh, moving from really, if you take again um, the food sector, moving in the beginning from providing this uh, classic um, pack of rice, uh, milk, whatever to people, then moving to paper vouchers so they can go shopping themselves, then providing cash to them, and then providing cash on mobiles. And today, very often, uh, many actors, including German NGOs, can even support in, in the most um, unsafest spots in the middle of northeast or northwest Syria people with cash from foreign locations and make sure that they still can reach them even if Damascus does everything to uh, stop this. So that's really interesting. And then the whole, uh, if you stick to the cash issue, the whole cash support even moving into what is uh, by experts called multi-purpose cash to say, well, can't we move humanitarian assistance and reform it fundamentally by providing only one kind of support by one or a couple of agencies and provide, um, like to, to, for example, Syrian families in Turkey, something like three, four hundred dollars, and then they decide in dignity and in ownership by themselves what is most needed, and they simply go shopping as we do and have some support which is much more matching a dignified approach, a needs-based approach, and can then also benefit um, local activities, local economy. Having said that, if you ask about localization, I believe, for example, the Syria crisis is not a prime example how that has moved and why this is still a key challenge. And that's also why we have started a project ourselves on localization issues and where, where we want to identify obstacles also uh, with uh, northern actors. Why, why doesn't this move and how might this be linked, for example, to management cultures? Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you have such a background at the World Food Program. And it's interesting how important think tanks like yours are to the humanitarian community because within a humanitarian organization, there's certain about a certain amount of resistance to not necessarily facing challenges, but the whole decision-making change to optimize operations based on maybe challenging input. So I think what you're doing is very amazing and what you bring to the table is amazing. And we were talking about, um, you know, cash aid in Syria and, you know, there's the shrinking humanitarian space and your center has done a lot of work thinking about that. And uh, I think a lot of us in the humanitarian community have observed that it's getting more dangerous out there and there's a lot more actors. I guess my first question to you is, is this real? And... Uh, Maybe you could talk a little bit about the Syrian crisis and what, how it is now. And I mean, if, if we talk about uh, shrinking humanitarian space, I believe um, there's, there are indeed a couple of trends which are worrisome. 
And some of them you can overcome by innovations like cash, by uh, digitalization, by, by uh, remote support to, to, to uh, beneficiaries, but also remote and to ensure accountability, like very, very bluntly, for example, to, to attach uh, GPS-related uh, um, technologies to goods you're delivering in Syria, so you can really track from, from Jordan um, if uh, the lorry has arrived and the goods have been delivered and where have they achieved a bit, a bit driver-like. Yeah, but of, of course, in some ways, uh, very, very advantages. The trend of shrinking humanitarian space, I think, is a worrisome because you have these issues of humanitarian access, of regimes not really accepting the principle of mutual, impartial humanitarian action, like in Syria, Yemen, South Sudan, etc. But you have it also on another level, uh, worrisome, that more and more uh, northern governments, including western governments, um, don't appreciate the impartiality of humanitarian action anymore and are shrinking the space. Um, like um, the Trump administration in the US uh, has been uh, often accused of instrumentalizing humanitarian aid, if you take the example of Venezuela. Um, but you have um, uh, similar trends that, for example, uh, EU policies are often associated with providing humanitarian aid rather in migration-related contexts, which might not be necessarily the ones where the needs are greatest, which would be according to humanitarian principles. The UK government has been, the new one, has been very blunt in saying, well, uh, humanitarian aid in all international cooperation needs to serve national interests in the future, which is again a contradiction to humanitarian needs-based approaches and uh, what it's all about. Uh, we believe, and uh, academic work has demonstrated, that it's, that it's much needed. So indeed, I think there is a trend uh, in conflicting humanitarian priorities of many very important actors and at the same time, a shrinking space allowing to deliver. And a final point on that one. On the one hand, there's a very encouraging trend uh, also by the pandemic, uh, where there has been, by other, for other reasons, uh, limited access and a shrinking space for international actors. That allowed much more scope, much more action by, by local actors, which is, has been much welcomed. But also, uh, one must be honest that the pandemic has been also a trend in shrinking space for local actors and governments abusing the pandemic and all its um, um, measures, closing down various institutions, actions, scope, um, also on the community level to limit the space local actors have. So there is also a conflicting trend. It's, it's moving into this direction. And it could be interesting if this is lasting, but also on the, on the political level, a trend to rather um, limit the scope of local actors, which have often um, not the capacities to, to defend this space mm -hmm. they need. That's true. Do you think it's time for another humanitarian uh, grand bargain and a new World Humanitarian Summit? We had it, what was it, five years ago, I forget, and um, your center has been thinking a lot about the revisiting the grand bargain. And Maybe it's time to, to, to think about these things again. And I think it needs to be in Berlin. Again, the Germans are very thoughtful, and I think we need to really rethink humanitarian operations in a sense, because you know, we have a, a divergence of these risks and shrinking space, but yet we have artificial intelligence and technology and starting to play a role in humanitarian operations. And looking ahead five years, we might see more technology-enabled initiatives and 
Um, indeed, we did some work on the fifth anniversary of the World Humanitarian Summit. And I'm not totally sure if another summit would help, but uh, definitely what is needed is a major push for humanitarian reform. In particular, in particular, if we talk about a push beyond the humanitarian enclave and the like-minded. Because there's been a lot of talk about the Grand Bargain, which on the one hand, from our view and our analysis, is one of the most ambitious and most inclusive reform projects for humanitarian action. And really looking into the right stuff, like a more localized aid, like providing flexible funding so aid agencies can work in an effective and efficient way, etc. And that's also why we are very happy that the grant bargain process, which ended officially in summer, has been extended by a GB 2.0 and might run at least for another two years. And we had a long discussion with a new eminent person, Jan Egerland, um, on, on its ambitions. And we think that's really important. The key question, I believe, will be, uh, can you create political momentum for this? And can you create it outside the humanitarians? Because only if you can ensure that, for example, also not only the foreign ministers, but also the finance ministers or their staff are fine with providing flexible funding. They are fine with providing humanitarian funding, even if there are major risks coming with it. Because, of course, it's a different story if you spend German taxpayers or US taxpayers' money for building a new bridge in Berlin, or if you try to save lives in the middle of a war. And you have to accept these risks and have a fair risk sharing. And that's a debate which, at the end of the day, is a very political one and goes, goes beyond what humanitarians can fix and do. And so I think the key question will be to lobby for that uh, we all need to be humanitarians and follow these humanitarian aims, even if we don't work in this arena. So is this the insight that you're sharing with the German government and the German humanitarian community? Um, I mean, in this regard, we, we try to provide advice, what is doable, and we try to support with knowledge we have, or we, we get together from, from others who are frontrunners on various fronts, how things can move. To give a very practical example, we have, for example, we have a debate right now to which extent uh, also um, in the context of a project we have started on the first level, a couple of uh, more or less like-minded European actors could learn from each other to progress on that front. Because it is uh, it, uh, sometimes it's political issues, but many of them face uh, very same political issues. And for example, um, if you take two two questions on, on donor funding, two issues uh, regarding donor funding, it is um, Germany is very good in in providing assistance very early in a crisis, what they call anticipatory action, which is a really important and encouraging trend, I believe, in assistance, but not that much already copied and followed by many other donors. So it's, it's also, and then we come to political and financial interest, so it's a measure to save millions, if not billions, of humanitarian aid. Um, if, you, if you provide assistance to people before a flood is hitting them, it's very easy and it's limited what is needed. If you do it once the flood is around, you need helicopters, you need an airlift, um, they need much more assistance, etc., because they haven't uh, fled in time, etc. So it's really something which can pay off, even if you don't only follow the humanitarian mandate. On the other hand, for example, Germany, Germany could learn still a lot in German actors about providing very flexible funds to, to NGOs, to, to UN, 
um, so they can decide uh, based on their expertise where to spend it, which crisis is the most important right now. And so we try to link these and to create a political momentum on all sides and um, to the benefit of everybody. Yeah, and it's really important. I was just thinking about um, your recent election here in Germany, and there's been a lot of talk about leadership of the European Union and leadership even in the humanitarian sector. So again, what your what your center is doing is very important on that that side. I wanted to mention, um, you know, this is the Humanitarian AI Today podcast, and we're you know, we try to link together AI developers and students and humanitarian actors, and that's why we're talking here today. And our community and others are very interested in ILE, the International Aid Transparency Initiative, because it represents a highly structured data source that humanitarian AI applications and machine applications can plug into the data stream and do, you know, you, you can, you can answer queries about humanitarian operations. So there's work behind the scenes on developing algorithms able to process queries using IOTI data. And, you know, looking ahead to the future, one day we, you know, we might have a, an algorithm at the table in your mobile phone. Do you think uh, that might impact humanitarian operations itself? We might have to soon think about how the algorithm will, you know, again, how Siri might impact decision-making mm-hmm. and coordination and focuses and this is an interesting subject. And Definitely, I would agree. I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert on, on these trends. Um, if we talk about um, artificial, artificial intelligence, etc., the whole process of, of digitalization can inspire change um, on the one hand and really inspire, I believe, um, for a start, of course, more efficient humanitarian aid. A very simple example, inducing biometrics to a refugee camp in Kenya, saved the World Food Program every month a million dollars. And so it's something where we can't say, well, um, especially we as Germans, uh, we are too nervous about this and let's talk about data protection and um, that's, that's the only focus we take on this. On the other hand, we start the digitalization project um, against the backdrop that um, we see a trend also to either embrace this and to be very, very enthusiastic, while maybe not that critical on data protection, on personal rights and and downsides of this, while on the other hand, uh, there needs to be a good balance in in, in, in looking into chances of risk and um, taking the the right opportunity. And so we, we want to work a bit, uh, also from a German angle, um, on, on these opportunities and try to see what, what can be harvested for better assistance, but also for improving areas uh, where digitalization uh, and uh, AI is not that much used yet. For example, the whole issue we talked about local actors, the whole issue of using digitalization for much better um, hearing affected populations, hearing the people we try to serve, there are a lot of ideas and tools around to do that, but these ones are not that fast advanced, um, according to our impression at least, as the ones to gain efficiency and to save donor funding. So I think there's a, a good balance needed as well. Yeah, it's interesting. The uh, Cisco Foundation has been working with uh, Mercy Corps on analytics and data science and thinking about optimization. And it's true, we have this hype around artificial intelligence, that we have a lot of committed work around using you know, data science to improve aid operations and efficiencies. And this is uh, an interesting area. 
mm-hmm. and I think in the future we'll see more of this sort of cross collaboration. Mm-hmm. Um, I know we're short, we, we're somewhat short on time here, but I really appreciate talking to you. It's amazing. And uh, one thing that we love to do that I didn't tell you is that we like to ask people to think about um, futuristic applications. And I, I love to listen to sci-fi audiobooks while I'm traveling, but it's nice to think about future applications and you know, thinking about humanitarian operations. What sort of questions would you like to be able to ask a AI in five years or ten years that might be plugged into everything? There's an organization in Portland, Maine called Partners for World Health, and I talked to them, and they, for example, provide medical supplies to NGOs in Syria, and they're interested in when you ship supplies to Syria, you ship through Turkey and the whole logistical chain. And they'd love to be able to ask Siri, hey Siri, who can help move my supplies from Turkey to the frontier and distribute those supplies where they live? You know, again, the whole logistics of that. It would be nice if you could, hey Siri, could you pop this out for me based on the capacity in the field? And, you know, you were with the World Food Program, but what would you love to be able to ask? <laughs> I think for my former colleagues, that would be a dream if <laughs> you could have, a, have an app like that. And we would like that. Um, I mean, I would put it a bit maybe more on the local level and maybe also simpler. I mean, there are, to my knowledge, there are already um, developments ongoing which try to create something which we, we might call more like an Uber of humanitarian assistance on the local level, and we will know all that much better. And if I think we could for a start, make this whole international humanitarian assistance machinery less important because we enable all the initiatives on the ground which are existing already to have even a much broader impact because we link the the local bakery um, with the people who are the most needy just uh, via an app they might have developed even themselves at some stage. Or if we can simply simply link all, all the potential which is uh, out there and the readiness to help and to host people and to fix uh, roofs of houses, to fix roads, to, to take care of kids if family needs to go to the doctor. Of course, a lot of that is out there, but if we could um, make it more impactful, that we really link the people who have something to offer and the people who are needy and vice versa at some other point in time, and if that would work much better in the future, um, that would be of great help and make a lot of the ambition a reality, which we all need to aim at if we talk about us as, as Muslimist, to make um, unnecessary our work and our uh, engagement, which is, of course, the, the end goal also of any think tank and engaging in this. Thank you so much. I, I love bringing that question on people. We, we haven't figured out a great way to, to, to frame the question, but it's it's, it's actually important for, for young people and for AI developers to, again, get acquainted with real humanitarian actors here and learn more about the field and then give them ideas on what they can work on that are somewhat realistic. So I, I appreciate you taking time to, to speak with us. And uh, is there anything we'd like to ask in closing if there's anything you need from the tech community or would like, and if you would like to leave any takeaways? Well, if you can help us simply spread the word and uh, our ambition also to get uh, beyond the humanitarian community and to simply share, um, as you are doing a great job in um, already, 
why humanitarian action is maybe today more important than ever because it's uh, life-saving for more people than ever and uh, crucial for more people in need worldwide than ever. And if you can spread that world into uh, more technical fora and by more technical tools and means than we are able to do, that would be much appreciated. And um, also against that backdrop, uh, many thanks for your important work and um, for being here. Thank you again, and uh, Ralph, this has been a great discussion, and I'm excited to be here in Berlin to learn more about German humanitarian actors and what's going on. And startups. Here. And startups, exactly. We're meeting a startup soon called the Light Tag, who's going to help us with data annotation. So we're really excited about the tech and humanitarian operations. Mm. So thank you again, and uh, this brings this edition of Humanitarian AI today to a close.